This morning, our scripture lesson comes from Acts chapter 12. Let's share in God's good word together. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. After he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the festival of unleavened bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Come, Holy Spirit. Come find us right where we are. In our joys, in our sorrows, in our fears, in our laughter. In times of crisis, in times of pandemic, and in just ordinary days of life. Come, Holy Spirit. Today we look at the grand sweep from the time Jesus ascends... 15 years of the early church history of God on the move in Jerusalem, in Joppa, in Caesarea, in Damascus, in Antioch. God is on the move. And we're going to trace the powerful Holy Spirit, these acts of the Spirit through the people of God, through the book of Acts chapter 1, all the way up through the book of Acts chapter 12. So let's get started. My name is Mark Foster. I'm the founding senior pastor of the people known as Acts 2 United Methodist Church. And we are people who live and breathe and move and depend on the very Spirit of God. The same Spirit that started the church and that we stand in today. In the book of Acts chapter 1, the resurrected Jesus walked the earth for 40 days. And around here we know that in um, the Jewish times that meant a long, long time. It wasn't as long as 40 years, but it was longer than 40 minutes. So 40 days Jesus walks the earth. He then ascends and sits at the right hand of God Almighty, and then he promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. And by the book of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit does indeed come. But it is strictly to devout Jews from every nation who are filled with the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, the capital city, the head of the religious headquarters, if you will. And it's going to be difficult for us to get our minds around about how hard it is for this movement to move. They, they thought at that time that there was one people of God, the Jewish people, and that God had chosen them over and against other groups like the Egyptians in the Exodus event. And now for the first time in the history of the world, this movement of God is spreading beyond just these people. And we're going to see the struggle that that is and continues to be today about who's in and who's out and why. And so the in the book of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the people of God. This little sect within Judaism, there's 120 people. The Spirit comes and it moves to 3,000 in a single day. And then in Acts chapters 3 and 4, Peter and John, who used to be hiding out, afraid of the governing authorities, are now filled with the Holy Spirit and they preach and they heal and they teach. And for that good work, they are arrested. Not lifted up in praise, but arrested but by the power of God, they are then again released so that the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the only Son of God, is on the move through the power of the Holy Spirit and the people of God. Now, in the book of Acts chapter 5, Peter preaches again in defiance of local orders. He's going on and he's living into what God has for him, but it's very difficult um, for him to do so. The scripture says this, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. And from that day to this day, Christians have struggled with our faith, 
and our allegiance to God and local officials? How do we live out our faith faithfully in love and kindness and also honoring those who we need to show honor to, but also first making sure that we follow God? And if you're following the news at all these days, you know that there are things that sometimes align beautifully with government and our faith, and other times they don't. And it's been a struggle from that day to this day. But just remember, our faith begins with these words. We must obey God rather than any human authority. And when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. Then he said to them, fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. Friends, this is a great principle. It's known as the Gamaliel Principle. And there are things in our life that we see something, we think, oh, we ought to hop on that. And Gamaliel says, well, not, not so fast. Hold on a minute. Let's, let's watch this play out. If it is just of humans, it's going to fail. It's just going to go away. Don't worry about it. But if it's of God... You want to make sure that you're not going up against it because you can't go up against God and win. God is going to win every time. But if you, even when you are with God and things, the cost of discipleship can be very high. It's not that it's going to be easy street when you follow Jesus. It hasn't been for many and many of his followers. And sometimes when you follow Jesus, things get really easy and good and wonderful. And sometimes when you follow Jesus, it might cost you your life as it has thousands before us. The scripture says this in Acts chapter 5. They were convinced by him, and when they had called in the apostles, they had them flogged. Now you remember that flogging was a whip with metal, um, steel balls, and uh, fish hooks. And they had this down to a terrible torture where they knew that 40 lashes minus one would keep you barely alive, and 41 lashes would probably kill you. And so they had to endure this flogging because they spoke the name of Jesus. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And what was their response to this flogging? They rejoiced and they continued to preach the good news of Jesus. There was nothing in the world that could keep them from doing that because they knew, as we know, that this world is not our home. We don't live every day for ourselves or for this world. We live these days for that day when we're going to live with Jesus forever and ever and ever. And this world and this life is like a blink of an eye. And so as they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And the church was growing and the church was on the move, but trouble was coming. By Acts chapter 6, the Hellenists, a subset uh, of Judaism, uh, the Hellenists were people who spoke Greek and had Greek culture in their life. 
they complained that their widows in particular were being neglected in the daily food distribution. Well, remember earlier in Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4, the churches gathered around and nobody went hungry. They would feed everyone as anyone had need. But by Acts chapter 6, it was beginning to become unfair. There were some people who got a little more, some people got a little less. Some people got there a little early, got to eat a little more. Others got there a little later, got a little less. And so they had to be on top. See, here's the thing about church. It's never perfect. It's never perfect. There are always problems, but God is with us and we overcome those problems together. And by Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches the truth and he's stoned for it. He's stoned to death, becoming the first martyr of Christianity. And we find in the book of Acts chapter 8 that Saul approves of his killing. Saul approved the killing of Stephen and ravaged the church. The scripture says this, Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women, and he committed them to prison. And God's going to get a hold of him and use him to write two-thirds of the New Testament. He's going to change everything about Saul's life. He's going to use all of that passion and all of that drive and turn it for good. And meanwhile, while Saul is ravaging the church, Philip is having a great day. He comes alongside the Ethiopian eunuch and baptizes him. So in Acts chapter 8, it says, Then the Spirit says to Philip, Go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he replied, How can I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Then the eunuch asked Philip, About whom may I ask you? Does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with the scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. Friends, it's always about the good news about Jesus. That's what we share. That's what we share. That's what we're about. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Friends, this is the church on the move. It is no longer just in Jerusalem. It is no longer just for devout Jews. It is starting to go out to the Ethiopian eunuch. And we're going to see here in just a bit, it's about to go to the West Coast, over to Joppa and up to Caesarea. It's about to go up to Antioch and all the way out to Tarsus and then on and on in the book of Acts. And by Acts chapter 9, the resurrected Jesus comes back from heaven and he confronts Saul on the road to Damascus. Because Saul is going to go really ravage more and more Christians. He's going up to Damascus and he's going to pull them all the way back to Jerusalem and throw them in jail. And Jesus interrupts this evil. Now, as he was going along, approaching Damascus, this is referring to Saul. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And who's going to tell him what to do? But a man named Ananias. God calls Ananias to minister to Saul. Ananias doesn't want to do it because he's afraid of Saul. He knows what Saul has done. But he does it anyway. He risks his life. And you and I are the recipients of the New Testament, largely written by the Saul. And I wonder what would have happened if Ananias would have said no. We'll never know. We thank God that Ananias was faithful to his calling, to a man who would change the world, the greatest church planter of all time, Saul, also known as Paul. So Ananias went, 
And he entered the house and he laid his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, that's amazing, Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, uh, which is up in Syria, north of Jerusalem. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. This is a 180. Saul is completely changed by meeting the resurrected Jesus, by seeing him face to face. And this is the good news of Jesus. When Jesus gets involved in your life, things change. Your world is turned right side up. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. Well, I guess so. He was at the stoning of Stephen. They knew who he was. It wasn't a secret to them. But he says, I'm changed. I want to join you. But they didn't believe that he was a disciple. And friends, this is important in your faith walk. If you are new to the faith, it's not an easy road. Saul's first attempt to become one of the disciples fails. He's like, hey, I'm one of you now. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, on. wait a minute. We, we need to watch you for a while, brother Saul. Let, let's see how this goes. And, and that's wisdom. That's good. And in Acts chapter 10, we find some really great news. And that is that God has no favorites. All of God's children are God's favorites. But anyone who reveres God and acts rightly is accepted. Um, your Bible might say anyone who fears God, which we know is a proper respect and awe and reverence, kind of like electricity. Um, it, it'll change your life for the good, but you better respect it because um, it can kill you. It can do some really wonderful things, but it can also do some terrible things. So we want to approach God and electricity with wisdom and, and some smarts about us. So God has no favorites, but anyone who reveres God and acts rightly is accepted. So then B Peter began to speak to them in Acts chapter 10. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now you'll notice that God is on the move from Jerusalem, the center part of the country, all the way out to Joppa, with Simon the Tanner, up to Cornelius, uh, into Caesarea, um, and then back into Jerusalem. And, and again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You would think that this wonderful news, that God is reaching out to all the world, every tribe, every nation, uh, people even outside of religious circles, that that would be a great thing. But what you'll find is so often, you do something that's beyond what people are used to, they're going to criticize you for it. So Peter returns to Jerusalem, and he's criticized by the Orthodox believers. And from there, um, our faith continues to grow. This time it's going to go north. And so there's some men from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they go 300 miles north up to Antioch, which is the third largest city at the time uh, in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. And they send Barnabas to check it out because these new believers in this very cosmopolitan, um, luxurious sort of town uh, are coming to know Jesus. And they want to know if that's true and if, and if they're actually doing it the right way. If, if the doctrine is correct, if people are learning about Jesus and, and holding fast to the things of the faith. So Barnabas travels 300 miles north to Antioch to check on new Gentile believers. And Gentile simply means not Jewish. And, and again, so here's the map. Um, we're going to go from Jerusalem instead of uh, just about 30 miles over here where Peter had been now. 
Um, Barnabas is sent all the way up 300 miles to Antioch, um, which is actually going to be uh, north of Damascus, I believe. So this is a long way up there, and, and, the, and our faith is growing and growing and growing. And that brings us to today, which is the great reversal in Acts chapter 12. As, as you begin Acts chapter 12, Peter is in a bad way, and King Agrippa is in charge. And by the end of this chapter, that's going to flip 180 degrees, just like Saul flipped, because God is on the move. So Herod Agrippa in 44 AD brought a new wave of persecution against church leaders. And why did he do this? Well, he was much beloved by the people, um, of the Jewish people at the time, because his mom was a part of the Maccabean revolt, um, and they knew that. Um, and you can study that on your own. That's a whole other sermon in itself. Um, and the scripture um, says this. He was basically playing to his conservative base at the time uh, who were hardcore Pharisees in Judaism. And the scripture says this. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. And after he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now notice that this was during the festival of unleavened bread. This is the Passover. And so hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the world would come back to this core festival of the faith uh, that celebrated um, the Spirit of God passing over their homes um, at the Exodus event. And when uh, King Agrippa had seized Peter, he put him in prison and handed him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. You see, this Herod Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great that we read about in the Christmas story in Matthew 2. Um, this Herod the Great was not so great, and he was in power uh, when Jesus was born. But he died um, by roughly 1 B.C. Um, he ruled from 41 B.C. to roughly 1 B.C. And then now, uh, his grandson, Herod Agrippa, is in charge. And because um, he's pandering to his religious base then, wow, what better thing um, to stay in power than to persecute the people that they don't like? William Barclay writes it like this. He says, The great tragedy of this particular wave of persecution was that it was not due to anyone's principles. It was due simply to Herod's bid to gain popular favor with the people. It was just politics. Now, here's the thing I want you to see. Politics got James, the brother of John, killed. And through Peter in prison. It didn't have to, anything to do with their character or who they were or what they were doing. It simply had to do that they were victims of the political structure of their time. And it still happens today all around the world and has from that time to this day. And what did the church do? What did the church do in response to this terrible evil of the time? Well, we prayed. In response, the church prayed for Peter. They knew he was in prison, so they prayed for his release. And, and you might think, well, I mean, really, does, does prayer change things? Yes, absolutely. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. Robert Wall, um, who writes about this chapter uh, in the Interpreter's Bible, um, he says this. He says, prayer is a defiant act because it recognizes that the purpose of a sovereign God will win out in the end. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, friends. 
We pray this every week. It is a powerful and world-changing prayer. So what happens in response to this prayer? Well, God sends an angel to the prison to help Peter escape. The scripture says the very night before Herod was going to bring him out before all the people, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell and he tapped Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his wrist. The angel said to him, fasten your belt and put on your sandals. And he did so. Then he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. You see, friends, we have an active part to play in our deliverance. When an angel shows up to you, listen, pay attention and get on the move. That's what Peter did. And it saved his life. And as soon as he realized this, He went to the house of Mary. When he was free, he went to the church. He went to his people and he celebrated. He wanted them to know what was going on with him. And he didn't want to get them in harm's way either. So they had gathered and they were praying for him. And I want you to see how this works. When we are saved from our circumstance, our first stop is church, our faith community. We let people know how we're doing day to day, minute by minute sometimes when it's critical. And so he goes to the church, meeting in a house, praying for him. And when he knocked at the outer gate, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. I love this part. On recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. I've been like Rhoda before. I'm so excited about something. I, what I really need to call to do is just open the gate, but I just don't even think of it. I'm so excited. And here's the thing. When Rhoda goes to the community, they didn't believe her at first. And sometimes, just like Peter, you know, we expect one thing from our church family and maybe they don't respond in a way that's all that helpful. Sometimes you just got to keep knocking, friends. When God calls you to something, just keep knocking. That's what Jesus says. Seek, ask, knock. That's what we're to do. And Peter lived it out beautifully. Now, they said to Rhoda, you're out of your mind. But she insisted that it was so. And they said, it is his angel. And meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the gate, they saw him. And we're amazed. So what happens? Well, Peter told the church what happened and left Jesus' little brother James in charge. Now, as you look at the book of Acts, you'll notice that Peter simply sort of disappears out of the story until uh, chapter 15. He comes back and he's leaving James in charge. It was the custom of the Jewish people and, and still in the Middle East even today that the younger brother of the person in charge would take charge of the responsibilities of the older brother once they passed. And since Jesus had ascended, James was next in line for that. So Peter is really handing um, the leadership keys over to James. So James really becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem at that time. So he motioned, Peter does, um, to them with his hand to be silent. And he described for them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, had saved them by their prayers. And he added, tell this to James, Jesus' little brother, and to the believers. And then he left. And he went to another place. The scripture doesn't even tell us where he went. And so here's the great reversal. In the end, Peter, who is in chains, who has a soldier on his right and a soldier on his left, and it looks like the end for Peter, he escapes and he's free. He's moved by the Lord and he goes. And at the end of chapter 12, Herod, the people cry out that he's a God himself and he dies and is eaten by worms, the scripture says. And so it's exactly opposite of what you think is going to happen. It's an incredible story of God on the move. And remember that when things look dire, when you don't think you have a prayer, that's exactly when you need the prayer and you need the church to pray for you. 
And so we want to be praying for you. We hope you'll let us know um, right now. Just go in the chat and say, this is how you can be praying for me. You may not have any hope about it, but we do because Jesus is alive and well and can change things in your life as he always does. And here's how chapter 12 ends. Listen to this, friends. The word of God continued to advance and gain adherence. You see, the word of God is Jesus Christ. All the words we read in the scriptures are about Jesus. He is the living word of God. And the word of God, Jesus Christ, and his church continued to advance and gain adherence. The church was growing and on the move in spite of conflict. It wasn't that there wasn't conflict. There was a lot of conflict, and it was hard. But the church remained. With Jesus in charge, the Holy Spirit on the move, and the people of God in prayer for one another. And so your action step for this week is very simple, but very difficult to do. And that is, I want to invite you to pray with me every day for deliverance from your enemies. Now, the word deliverance in the Bible and salvation are the same word. That we would be saved from our enemies, that we would be delivered from our enemies, and for their salvation. This is how Jesus teaches us to pray. To pray for those who persecute us. To pray for our enemies. The best thing you can do for someone that you're struggling with right now is to give them over to God. To pray for them that they would find a living relationship with Jesus Christ, blessed by His grace, changed by His mercy, and live full out for Him. As it happened for Saul, may it happen for you and for the world. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.